I'm Austin, and this is Validated. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Dave Stetson, a former senior lawyer at OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, and Mike Mosher, a former acting director of FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. My colleague, Amira Valiani, head of policy at the Solana Foundation, also joins me as co-host. As that stack of names and titles implies, this episode is a discussion about how the U.S. government deals with illicit activity in Web3, particularly as it pertains to national security. To help give context to the overall conversation, we start things off with a primer on OFAC and FinCEN. We pose a few hypothetical scenarios that refer back to Web2 regulatory precedents to get a sense of how these federal offices think about dealing with bad actors on the internet. If you were paying attention to the crypto news cycle last summer, you'll recall that Tornado Cash, privacy-focused cryptocurrency mixer, was placed on OFAC's SDN list, the list for specially designated nationals, after North Korea used the protocol to launder hundreds of millions of dollars to allegedly fund nuclear weapons. For reasons we discuss at length, folks in the crypto community and the tech space at large criticized OFAC's decision as vague and overreaching in its scope. We consider alternatives for how the government could have handled the tornado cash situation and the way in which government does and does not regulate other industries that have facilitated illicit activity as a byproduct of normal business operations. While the Tornado Cash sanction is old news at this point, thoughtful conversations about the intersection of blockchain, national security, and technology ethics are always relevant. The Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, aka the Warren Marshall Bill, threatens to hold blockchain validators responsible for illicit activity on-chain, and many of us in this space believe this bill misrepresents and misunderstands blockchain technology. I think there's a compelling argument to be made that smart contract blockchain networks are actually better categorized like the systems today that run the internet. Base layer, credibly neutral infrastructure that's largely a telecommunications and messaging protocol. Today's internet is just as much a financial instrument for delivering ads, diapers, and derivatives as blockchain is. This is one of my favorite conversations we've had on the show. Mike and Dave are a rare combination of experts in how the government thinks about this topic while also understanding blockchain at a technical level. For those looking for a vision of what positive sum engagement with regulators could and should look like, I hope this episode can be a template. As always, send us your thoughts and suggestions at validated at solana.org. Let's dive in. Mike and Dave, welcome to Validated. So I want to start out with what are FinCEN and OFAC? Sure, I can start. This is Dave, and I can speak about OFAC a little bit and then uh, leave it to Michael to speak about FinCEN. So OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control within the Treasury Department, and it is the agency that administers, implements, and enforces U.S. sanctions regimes. It's been around for a while. I think it dates its history back to World War II, when there were efforts to freeze and immobilize the assets of the adversaries in World War II. It's evolved a lot over the years, and it now is the agency that has both uh, policy-making functions around making decisions about when and, and how to deploy sanctions, as well as licensing and enforcement that enable it to administer the sanctions once they're imposed and to punish those who violate the sanctions. And what's FinCEN? Uh, yeah, so FinCEN is related. They're both undersecretary in the Department of Treasury, but FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which has two roles. It's both the Financial Intelligence Unit for the U.S., so it collects information that's reported from suspicious activity reporting from financial institutions and then distributes that to what could be law enforcement, for instance, seeing 
tips that there's going to be uh, domestic violent extremism, like when, you know, the Capitol riots happened, something like that, kidnappings, it could be very operational, something like that. Or it could be trends analysis, like such as during COVID in the beginning, there was a lot of fraud and scams. And so that would get distributed back out to the public in the form of alerts. So the idea is to be a clearinghouse that gets out to the public as well and financial institutions as well. And then it's also the administrator of the Bank Secrecy Act, which is the primary anti-money laundering authority for the U.S. And so I'm curious. So like FinCEN is doing all the investigation. You're figuring out like what is actually happening at the heart of all this sort of like bad actor activity. And OFAC is sort of a tool to help enforce against one of those actors. What is it? What does it look like? Like maybe you guys can take an example of, of when you're at Treasury. But when we talk about like catching and sanctioning a bad guy, you know, take us through what that journey looks like. Sure. So one of the main legal authorities that OFAC uses is a statute called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA. Most of the recent sanctions efforts uh, start with the U.S. government using that IEPA authority to identify some type of a threat to U.S. national security, U.S. foreign policy, or the U.S. economy, and declaring what they call a national emergency to, to deal with the threat. And then the U.S. government will also usually through an, an executive order that comes out from the president, will establish certain criteria for imposing sanctions. So an executive order will be issued under that IEPA statute, empowering the U.S. government to impose sanctions on persons, individuals, or entities who engage in, in certain specified activities that are deemed to be that type of national security or, or foreign policy or economic threat. And then where OFAC comes in through a, also through an interagency process, so it is coordinated with some of the other U.S. government agencies, is once that executive order or sanctions listing authority is in place, OFAC has a unit that investigates potential targets. And this is actually one of the areas that Michael used to work in when he was at OFAC. So they investigate potential targets, identify the individuals and entities who are engaging in the conduct that could warrant being placed on the list. And then that ultimately gets reviewed through an internal process at OFAC, vetted with other U.S. government agencies, and then ultimately will result in that person or that entity being named to OFAC's sanctions list, which is known as the Specially Designated Nationals or SDN list. So that's the high-level process. And, and how would this look in action? And maybe we could take like an internet example. How does OFAC sort of look at someone who might have a Gmail account in a country you know, where we might have after that we sanction. And I say emailing to request someone send me a bunch of uranium. And how do, you, how do we think about sort of like that as a case study and, and deciding whether or not to impose sanctions on Google? Like what, what does that process actually look like? Certainly. So I think the way that the analysis would start is that with respect to, say, North Korea or Iran uh, and a number of other jurisdictions that are the, the target of, of comprehensive sanctions, there is an IEPA authority in place that prohibits imports or exports of services to or from that jurisdiction. So this is actually a different type of OFAC sanction. I was speaking earlier about those list-based sanctions where they put a particular person, a particular individual or company on the SDN list. The other thing that OFAC does is impose these blanket prohibitions on transactions that involve a particular jurisdiction. So North Korea is one of those, Iran is one of those, and, and among those prohibitions is a prohibition on importing or exporting services to or from that jurisdiction. So the way that a Gmail account would be looked at for, say, an individual who's sitting in North Korea, OFAC would view that as a provision of an internet-based service to that individual. And just like any other service to someone in that jurisdiction, because that 
ban on services is in place, that would be a violation unless it was authorized by OFAC under that licensing authority OFAC has. Which I, which I would just add, you know, there's there's also a number of authorizations or exemptions out there for a, a lot of different personal communications and and other information flows. I think using North Korea is, is helpful because there's very few uh, exemptions and authorizations related to that. But for instance, in the Iran context, there are actually quite a few authorizations or exemptions from from these. Not necessarily that would that would allow Google services. So I think there's nuance in there around things like Coursera and educational information flow, but there's like a general license that authorized all sorts of technological services to people in Iran, including around recently actually updated for like human rights actors and getting technology for um, counter surveillance and to allow the internet infrastructure to operate to further sort of free exchange of ideas, which, which dovetails with the Berman Amendment, which is a whole nother conversation. But just to say, that's that's ways in which there are reasons why the U.S. government and OFAC has specifically said, yes, we need to have this sort of economic statecraft and there's corrupt and authoritarian regimes out there doing things that we want to take action against. In fact, just today, there were OFAC sanctions on Zimbabwean officials related to, to corruption. But we recognize that people within these countries need access to technology, including for counter-authoritarian work, which is the point of the sanctions. Yeah. So we're going to get to how this all applies to blockchain in a second. But there's still a preliminary question I wanted to ask, which is, is cash considered a service? In the model we outlined, Gmail is potentially liable because that's a provision of a digital service. Doesn't Treasury provide currency services? So I would say cash itself would not be likely to be viewed as a service. I think at its root, cash would be more likely to be viewed as a good. I think the way that these regulations tend to reach uh, movements of cash or, or transfers of, of cash or other or electronic funds transfers is by viewing the, the processing of that movement of the cash as a service. Yeah, which actually, Austin, I actually, I don't know where you're at because I'll let you do it, but I'll just say this leads to some really interesting conversations to the extent that you consider like Bitcoin or crypto cash-like because it can be peer-to-peer -peer and basically essentially a bearer instrument. Yeah, this is exactly where I was going to try and move the conversation because if you think of cryptocurrency as a commodity in a P2P system, is the network responsible for the actions of an individual? I want to get into this question with a simple example, and then we can work our way back to the tornado cash sanctions. Let's say we have a US-based individual who transacts with someone in North Korea over the Bitcoin network. There seems to be this assumption that the entire Bitcoin network is in some way liable for that. Is that an accurate description of where some of the legal thinking is today? There were bills out there <laughs> that would envision this. And I think before even getting into that, I would just say we make a hard distinction sometimes about maybe to our detriment at times about Web 3 to Web Web 1, 2 and, and 1. And I think this is one where if you're listening to this or, or reading the Warren Marshall bill and you're at Google or let's say 1Password, like I think you should really be reading all of these bills and thinking, wait a minute, isn't that essentially a key management solution? Isn't that what LastPass, Keeper, 1Password does? Like there's all sorts of password key, man. I mean, a key is a password, essentially. There's all sorts of these management solutions that allow you to go in and, and take action um, and provision that, that are providers in that space that, that are certainly probably not doing 
meaningful OFAC compliance other than that they check when Dave uses his, if he uses his credit card to buy it, you know, it checks that he's not on a list, but it doesn't call up Dave and say, you know, we'd like a, a complete due diligence to make sure you're not a member of ISIS. Um, there's a lot of groups on the list. It's not just your wallet. It's, it's all these other memberships. They're, you're not doing that. And I think also if you're a cloud services provider that does distributed computing, like even AWS and Google Cloud, I'd be reading some of this and thinking, wait a minute, weren't these already exempted? Now, why are we undoing this? That, that's a bit of a detour, but, <laughs> but I think- Yeah. I, well, so I want to like, maybe we take a step back because I think there's a couple of questions here. This gets to the heart of like, how do we think about sanctioning of infrastructure versus the sanctioning of like things that are done on top of that infrastructure? And where blockchain gets murky is like the infrastructure- has native tokens all aligned with it, which I think like end up sort of getting implicated in a lot of questions about like what does constitute sanctionable activity. My understanding is that there's the Bitcoin network, which is not sanctioned. But if I were to transfer, use the Bitcoin network to send Bitcoin to someone in North Korea, that would constitute sanctionable behavior, right? Because I am actually using this network to perform a service or provide funding to someone in an like in a country that has sort of broad-based sanctions on top of it. So I, I want to make that distinction, right? As it currently stands, by using this particular network, like it's not like I am de facto subject to sanctionable behavior because maybe someone in North Korea uses it. But if I send money to someone in North Korea, like that is actually sanctionable behavior. Is that distinction correct? Yes, I, th I think that's exactly the way that OFAC would look at it. And I think part of the way that they approach this, which I think is is natural, but it definitely leads to to areas where you know, more clarity needs to be provided and where old models that worked in the fiat world don't translate to the blockchain world with any type of you know ease or facility, is that OFAC is used to being able to find a financial institution gatekeeper on one end or the other or both of a transaction. So break it back to the fiat world, just as the example, if you were sending dollars to North Korea, you know, that there would be a violation by a US person that sent the dollar, a violation by the US bank that processed it. And I think part of the, where the regulatory framework is intending or inclined to evolve here is to figure out what, if anything, is the analogy to the financial institution that would be involved in these transactions, or how do they cope with the fact that there is not a financial institution involved in these transactions? So like Dave listed out, you know, the, the financial institution would, would probably be liable, Amira, for sending it to begin with. I think no one would expect liability for Verizon that provided the the data packets that were allowed to transmit and the DNS resolver that allowed the front end of her Wells Fargo website to resolve and send the data packets. And I think in that there are even validators even though we've sort of, that name is more commonly used in Web3, like it already existed in Web2. I mean, there's there's validators of data packets related to HTML and RSS feeds, like the validator piece, because we've sort of used a lot of financial transaction terminology in Web3, it sort of like has this feel that you're stamping transactions as valid, but but in fact, it's it's really just checking the correctness of a data packet according to automated rules. And so the people, the, the the automated functions that are processing data in that fiat transaction would not, you wouldn't look to them and expect them to be held liable. Yeah. So this is something I want to get into. If I send money via my bank to someone who is on the sanctions list, would SWIFT be liable if it was an international wire transfer? Like, I don't actually know the answer here. 
I see the it's about to get spicy smile on your face, so let's go here. Yeah. Right. So I would say Swift, and I think this goes to exactly the distinction that we've been speaking about here, right? Because Swift is, I think, sometimes sort of misunderstood as the entity that actually moves the money. But the T in Swift stands for telecommunication. The only thing that Swift is doing is it's a messaging platform between the banks. And then the banks act on those messages to move the money, you know, make credits and debits on their ledgers and so on. So the the only thing that Swift is doing is providing uh, a communication channel between the banks with respect to the, the the movement of these funds. So I would say in that in that scenario that, that you raised, Austin, that Swift would not be liable. Okay, let's roll up one level higher. Let's talk about a situation where Amira sends Ethereum from her wallet via Tornado Cash to someone who's on the sanction list. The function of Tornado Cash here is it's a messaging protocol. Like one of the core things about blockchain is the coins never actually move from one wallet to another wallet. We're just reassigning ownership, and that ownership is reflected in the blockchain's ledger. So why is Tornado Cash seen differently than Swift in the previous example? Can we actually back up really quick before we get into Tornado Cash? Because I think these distinctions are really important to draw. So in, in this example, I use Ethereum to send ETH to someone in North Korea. Is the Ethereum network liable in that case? Or is it sort of similar to Swift? Like, what, where do you come down on the network itself? I think the way that OFAC or you know, the US regulators would look at that would be to focus in particular because they only have jurisdiction over US persons, right? To focus on whether there were US actors involved in that network and whether they were in a position to identify the fact that the uh, beneficiary of this transfer was in the sanctioned jurisdiction. And then because the overall expectation of OFAC in this uh, in, in sanctions compliance generally is to have a risk-based compliance program, I think they would say that US persons that are involved in that transaction that have the ability to discern that it's going to North Korea should be putting in place some type of a risk-based compliance measure to interdict and and prevent that. Now, you know, of course, one of the hallmarks of these technologies is that you aren't going to know that it's going to North Korea. And so I, I think the, the regulators don't expect uh, US persons to achieve the impossible or to know the unknowable. It sometimes does feel like they do expect us to know the impossible, though. And this is speaking as someone who's not in the regulation trenches day to day, but as someone who sees their effects. One of the things I'd love to do as a thought experiment is this. How could Treasury be liable in a situation like this? You can make an argument that Treasury has not done everything it could to stop the use of cash in the drug trade. Obviously, there's huge amounts of money that have been spent trying to stop the drug trade, but from a technology standpoint, we know there's a lot more that could be done. And it's no coincidence there's more $100 bills in circulation than $1 bills. They fit in a duffel bag really well. Like, there are technologies we could incorporate into the $100 bill to prevent them from being used as part of the drug trade like chemical trace signatures, other sorts of things. But Treasury hasn't implemented them. And now when you turn around and look at the way some of these crypto regulation bills are being written, it does feel like there's a bit of an impossible request being made to blockchain networks that doesn't seem like it's being made to other actors in the financial system. Yeah, there's a lot in there. I mean, it feels like maybe we should go to Tornado Cash first because I think that's like maybe most responsive to the set of questions. And as someone who's like a former sort of national security professional, it's it's like really helpful to get the perspective of someone who's like never touched government before, right? To be like, all right, like, I don't know, like Treasury doesn't actually like, 
I don't I don't know what Treasury's obligations are the drug trade. There's a bunch of agencies out there. Like FinCEN does part of this. But so let's let's actually talk about Tornado Cash. So like maybe Mike or Dave, uh, it'd be good to just have uh, maybe Mike will throw it to you. Like what happened to, in Tornado Cash? Like just like from the facts perspective, like what did Treasury do here? And then we could talk about whether or not it feels valid. Sure. Yeah. So uh, there were two actions actually. First, uh, August eighth of last year, OFAC sanctioned Tornado Cash, and that was sort of defined in the original listing for its alleged role in laundering. Actually, it was over four hundred fifty-five million dollars worth of cryptocurrency stolen by a North Korean linked hacking organization called Lazarus Group. And Lazarus Group has been like a very well-known national security issue for quite a long time, and 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 the sense is that it. 455 million in crypto at a time when, if you remember back, like ransomware was also at a peak. North Korea as an issue was was also peaking um, due to their sort of missile tests. And so the original sanctioning was the first time that smart contracts were sanctioned or designated, uh, listed on the list. Usually there's a there's some sort of, at the very end, this is very technical, but at the very end of a listing, it'll it'll maybe have in brackets, like here's the program it was listed under. And then here's what it was. It was an entity or whatever it was, an organization. This this actually didn't have that on that one, I believe. And at the time, it was a it was sort of a, a I think it's including tech folks that were that were beyond crypto were looking at this as like code being sanctioned and designated. There wasn't really a huge description of the organization itself or what what does that mean? Is it the smart? A lot of people took it to be that the smart contract was being designated, and then I think. Maybe Dave and I were in it more in the weeds thinking like, oh my gosh, wait, is it block property or is it designated? Like, what does this mean? Is it property? Um, and then leading to all kinds of conversations about First Amendment, is this code is speech? What about code? And then like commercial speech, like, well, what about code that's active and involved in com- commerce in some form? Um, but I think the the big move was that in prior cryptocurrency related designations, it was wallets. So you, you suddenly moved to like an actual smart contract. Um, and that has all sorts of implications for even the implementation of sanctions and the enforcement, one of which, well, let, let's get to that in a second, but uh, I would just let me get to the second designation, which was they did a, fo- you know, there were some lawsuits as, as Amira noted, which is not totally unusual for OFAC, particularly in a national security situation, which we had with North Korea at the time is to move pretty quickly and then go back and spend more time sort of reviewing the record and seeing if there's something that they they want to make clearer or update or tighten. And that's what they did on, on November 8th of last year, where they delisted and redesignated Tornado Cash. And this time they sort of broadened the justification, emphasizing that it was specifically supporting North Korean hackers, including made the tie of how that was benefiting the weapons of mass destruction program in North Korea, the sort of shoring up the, the justification for it. Um, and I think the other piece of it that's relevant to all this is that they sort of named it as an entity and and put out an FAQ that also sort of explained like, you know, if you've been dusted, we're not going to take enforcement action on that. And you can potentially get a license to get your money out if you have money in there. Um, so sort of trying to address the collateral impact issue and then also addressing the sort of what is sanctioned, reminding people no developers were sanctioned or designated put on the list. This was an organization and basically saying this is an unincorporated association, which in, in many ways would harken back to Austin's narco groups um, that are also not incorporated or they are with front companies in Delaware, probably. Um, but they but they're, you know, as a function, they're not incorporated associations. There's 
a lot to dig into that even itself, I think, because while it's true that OFAC has designated unincorporated associations before, Dave will know even better than me because he's seen thousands of these <laughs> packages, but like, that's not a, hey, we all decided that Amira and Austin are together and they probably work together. They probably have an unincorporated association. It's like you actually lay out, this is how these people are operating towards a common goal. This is how we know that their interests are aligned. There's a, essentially a command and control element to this. Like it's not just sort of picking people out and deciding that they're an unincorporated association. It, in fact, in the Russian organized crime space in particular, there's been a lot of debate about different groups being designated of like, well, are they really a thing that operates with a common interest? Or is it just that occasionally their interests uh, collide and they might even align or they might not? And is that right to call it an association? Well, also in this case, like what is what is the association? It's like a bunch of code that's been deployed to GitHub and used to process these. Yeah, I think that's part of the question. If you're looking at it from OFAC's perspective, I think they would say the people who contributed to this code that they saw as being a mixer that was going to be used to obfuscate $455 million worth of cryptocurrency by North Korean hackers to support the WD program, that they all knew what they were making and they made a mixer on purpose. I think the thing that makes it surprising if you look back into the history of OFAC designations is also, well, okay, but even Chainalysis, who had the most negative uh, assessment of, of, of how much illicit activity was going on and others had less, but they said around 30% of it could be tied to illicit activity. But that means 70% of the users were at least not identifiably engaging in anything illicit, which is, that's an enormous amount of collateral impact that I wouldn't necessarily expect. The challenge I have with this is there's no question that Tornado Cash was not built to help North Korea. In no world is there any evidence for that. It just happens to be how the thing was used. And to me, it doesn't seem much different than London real estate or New York real estate. These are properties that are not built to be an offshore stash for the wealth of Russian oligarchs. They just happen to be. And we don't see real estate developers brought up on charges for selling apartments at exorbitant prices to foreign nationals. And so this one felt a little strange because it wasn't that they were going after a technology that had any explicit intention to be used in this way. It was privacy-preserving technology that happened to be used in this way. You know, it reminds me a lot of the encryption debates that go on every 20 years when someone in law enforcement and Congress decides we need to break end-to-end -end encryption. They drum up all kinds of reasons for it. This happened in the 90s. This happened again after 9-11. This happened again a few years ago. And so I wonder... How much of this is good faith and how much of this is security apparatuses trying to do what they do, which is always accumulate more information and more power? I'll jump in here and I'll defend the U.S. government, which uh, which is like sort of an interesting, interesting hot take. I think like the what this really gets into your point, Austin, is like what I hear from a lot of folks I talk to who are sort of working at the intersection of national security and crypto is this accusation of decentralization theater. Right. Like the the idea here that I think you're raising is like. It's just code, like these things are out there for people to use, like there's no intent built into it. It's like kind of crazy to hold like a, an individual or sort of an organization liable when it just sort of exists in the ether the same way that like this cup exists. And I think like the big accusation from the government's perspective is sometimes like the industry makes itself out to be way more decentralized than it is, right? And and there's actually there actually are points of failure, like this isn't sort of a, a thing that just exists in the ether, no pun intended. 
it is something that like people can actually take action behind. And so, you know, I think what's really interesting is in the original designation, the Undersecretary of Treasury, Brad Nelson, said, um, despite public assurances otherwise, Tornado Cash has repeatedly failed to impose effective controls designed to stop it from laundering funds from malicious cyber actors on a regular basis and without basic measures to address risks. This is super interesting. It means that like, yeah. you know, he went there and he was like, we've, we've had communications with Tornado Cash, or at least we've tried to communicate with this organization, implying that there's an organization there. And, and they didn't actually take steps to, you know, to comply. And so the question there is, you know, from the perspective of industry, like what's actually the threshold at which it no longer makes sense from the perspective of someone like, you know, an undersecretary of treasury to engage directly or expect a response and, and just believe that these things are out there to be used. I think the part of the thing that was, and this is why it seems a bit odd to me that the route that went, it was just that Tornado Cash itself was explicitly using the free chain analysis API to do some form of like the basic sanctions blocking. And so it seemed odd to go right to designation. And maybe there were conversations that we don't know about, but in a, I feel like in a normal situation, well, when I would go to Dave Stetson to clear something, he would not have cleared a package for me if I said, um, Dave, no big deal. There's a bunch of U.S. persons involved, which we know because they're on Twitter and, and they're saying that they're affiliated with Tornado Cash. And the Tornado Cash Twitter feed itself has said they're using the Chainalysis API. So at a minimum, you could DM whoever's running the Tornado Cash Twitter that's saying we're doing using Chainalysis API and say, we should have a conversation. We think this isn't enough. Or, you know, we get it that there that you're there's a lot of legitimate users, just like a VPN, but 30% is just too high and 500 million is too much. And we need to come up with let's let's work together in some form. I think if Dave, if I went to Dave and said there's US persons involved, we're just gonna sanction them, he would say, No, you're not. Um, <laughs> but but we can <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> so, but we'll have a conversation with Department of Justice probably. Um and then I think it would be, and then we would also go into this collateral impact analysis of like, well, wait a minute, you're saying it was designed. I mean, Austin mentioned this as well and Amira, yeah. but like you're saying this was designed to aid North Korea, but 70% of it was not tied to illicit activity. So it's either failing miserably or something's happening. Although I still think if 30% of Wells Fargo's activity was illicit, something would 100% happen. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think it would be a designation, but there would be something. So sorry, let me turn it over to Dave Right. Well, I think on that point, I mean, I think that that's that's a really interesting issue to explore in terms of I think that in making these types of listing decisions or designation decisions, I think OFAC is much more focused on the consequences of what quote unquote organization is doing than on the intent that was behind its establishment or its creation. And, and I think that certainly leads to a lot of overbroad consequences when these listings happen. Um, but I think that's something that OFAC accepts as inherent in a lot of their sanctions listings. So, you know, they will put they put major Russian banks uh, on the on the OFAC list uh, in in response to the war in Ukraine. You know, the largest retail bank in Russia is on the OFAC list. Probably, you know, ninety eight percent of the deposits at that bank have nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. But uh, you know, OFAC froze one hundred percent of the assets of that bank within U.S. jurisdiction because they found that it met one of these, uh, you know. Uh, criteria for a sanctions listing. So they're, I think they don't think that it's a necessary factor for the code or the organization or, or for, for the activity to have been initiated with the, with the purpose of helping 
North Korea or a bad actor. Uh, if the result is that they're helping the bad actor, that's enough for effect to want to take action. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. So going back to the Russian bank example, this is a large retail bank and the vast, vast majority of activity is not related to the war in Ukraine. Do these sanctions actually accomplish their goals? I don't think anyone's going to argue with the example of preventing Nazis from getting access to funds during World War II. But it's a big step from that to say that anyone using tornado cash should be under the same regime that was used to prevent the Nazis from accessing financial instruments. Right, right. So I think the the question of whether sanctions are effective or or meet their goals is a very difficult one to answer for a lot of reasons, one of which is that one of the purposes of sanctions in many cases is to prevent people from even trying to get away with certain activity. So there's a sort of dog that doesn't bark type of question. And then there's, of course, the fact that a lot of these policy decisions and, and sanctions listings have consequences that play out over time and that they can't be measured immediately, and that in some ways the US government is playing the long game with these types of actions. But I would say, with respect to Tornado Cash in particular, I think if one of the consequences of the OFAC listing, which I understand to be the case, is that the website has been taken down, it's sort of harder for actors to be able to use Tornado Cash, at least in transactions that otherwise touch the United States. I think OFAC would look at that as a as a policy success. And in terms of the overbreadth, I think this goes to one of the points we touched on briefly earlier around this ability to to issue licenses. And, and Michael mentioned this as well, I think, which yeah. is that I, I think what OFAC would say is that they have a, a remedy for the innocent bystander whose funds get locked up in tornado cash and was doing nothing wrong by using the privacy enhancing aspects of it uh, and had no intent to you know, engage in illicit activity or, or launder ransomware proceeds. And I think what OFAC would say and has said in one of the FAQs that they put out is that they have this licensing authority that is designed to kind of unstick those frozen funds, unfreeze those frozen funds for the innocent parties, and that that is how they strike that balance between um, you know, maybe it's the 30% of, of illicit and 70% not illicit, and that they will use that licensing authority rather than forbear from taking any action in response to the at what they said at the time was $7 billion worth of, of, of laundering that had happened through the protocol. Is it a fair remedy, though? Like, is this is this actually, like, feasible for the average person to go apply for, like, an OFAC exemption to get their salary or money tied up in tornado cash? Yeah. How many have actually been issued? That's a good question. They don't publicly list them, so I don't know. But I do think, including if you compare to sort of the Russian retail bank example, and I don't know specifically at which ones in particular, but in many of those cases, it wouldn't just be a specific licensing where everybody has to, you know, hire a lawyer and go in and possibly pay a lawyer more than the amount that you actually have in Tornado Cash to get this back. They would do a what's called a wind down license that would say, we we know there's a lot of legitimate operators in this. You got you have 90 days, you know, to remove your assets, uh, and after that, 
were watching sort of, and it would allow them to, it would allow people sort of innocent users to refer to their, any outgoing bank, like, look, there's a wind down license. I can move this stuff out. I think at a scope of 70%, I would sort of normally expect some sort of wind down license. I, I know it's a complicated space, but when we've done bank designations uh, at OFAC, like in, in Honduras uh, and other places that were, had narco connections, like there, I mean, there were people on the ground the next day figuring out wind down licenses, you know, recognizing that there are people that are trying to pay their mortgage that have nothing to do with this. And, and so I, the, you know, there were FAQs. I think it was all, uh, it's hard to say too slow because OFAC is so under-resourced for what it's, what it's supposed to do. It's, it's sort of ridiculous. But the flip side is like, I would expect this to have that sort of wind down license that wouldn't require somebody that, I mean, you could have $250 in there. I mean, that's not going to get you started with most lawyers. And I don't think it's even good for OFAC to have everybody writing their own license applications and to have the time and ability to do that. And I think Austin's questions of effectiveness it points to another issue that that why I think it should have been more of an enforcement posture, if anything, than a designation is just that the the, the way that these function is even you know calibrating for the collateral impact through licensing, ideally through general licensing, these are behavior change mechanisms, not punishment like explicitly. And so like to even be asking the question, did they work? Is, be, is like you're asking that because that is the purpose is to change behavior. So it's unclear how sort of an immutable smart contract is going to change behavior and how how it could ever get delisted. So it seems an odd tool to use if you're presuming that there's no way that it could get off the list, which also means that all those pe- the 70% of people, you know, unless they're going to shell out to hire a law firm to come in and get a specific license or spend the time learning OFAC to do that, that, that they're just locked in there potentially indefinitely. And so uh, it's a complicated one because, like, as Dave rightly points out, well, from a total practical standpoint of was it effective, like the liquidity has precipitously dropped in Tornado Cash and there aren't many licit users that are going to go to Tornado Cash, even though it's the perfectly legitimate means for 70% of the users to like be a dev doing some work that didn't want to, once they got paid $250, now whoever paid them now knows their wallet address for life. (laughs) Um, And so... It's like maintaining your VPN that, yes, some people have abused it, but like there's a lot of good reasons why we want people riding Amtrak or staying in hotels to use VPNs. And so I think normally you would have like it's effective, yes, in that like it, it dropped the liquidity, but effective in that it could ever be delisted. It's it's hard for me to imagine how they would even be possible to be to be delisted. Maybe one more point on, on the effectiveness thing, just to look at one potential other way that OFAC would look to measure the effectiveness of, of actions like this is what they, I think, would embrace as the chilling effect of actions like this, right? And this sort of goes back to the quote we were talking about earlier from the undersecretary about they clearly have this perception that there were things, additional measures that could have been done that the organization the behind Tornado Cash was not willing to do. Um, and that that was part of the reason why they went forward with this designation. So I think having announced that and having made that statement that the undersecretary made, I think they're looking to strike fear into people who may be developing similar protocols that uh, if the treasury comes knocking and says, why don't you do X, Y, or Z, that they at least should be engaging on that. And if to the point about whether you can do the impossible or know the unknowable, if what treasury thinks can be done actually cannot be done, then I would expect, uh, and maybe I'm, I'm a little bit overly optimistic about good government here, but 
I would expect that you know, a reasonable policymaker would accept the argument that they're simply mistaken if they think that X, Y, or Z could be done. But for now, of course, we're kind of shadowboxing because we don't know what the ask was and what Tornado Cash's response to it was. But I think for as long as Treasury has this perception that there are step, additional steps that could be taken that were not taken in that in, in Tornado Cash's case, I think uh, you know, those who uh, are potentially putting out similar types of smart contracts or developing similar protocols are are now incentivized to sort of think more about whether there's more that could be done in this area to strike that balance between the illicit and the illicit in a way that is more suitable to what the U.S. government sees as the policy goals. One quick addition to that, because I think, I think, I mean, all great points, and I think it's important to be thinking in the most generous terms to OFAC because they are well-intentioned like public servants. And I think if anything, this was a, a mandate from the NSC saying this is too much money to North Korea, do it. Um, and I think that's why you see a res de redesignation when they had time to catch their breath. But I, but I also think it, it's this, that sort of collateral impact points to why I think sanctions was probably the wrong tool for this. Like you could potentially do enforcement or do what other, other engagement but the collateral impact of the chilling, I think, because you're talking about open source development, I think is beyond anything that you would see in a normal financial situation where, you know, there was a recent action actually against Wells Fargo um, while we're picking on them <laughs> involved in some sanction screening, like some software that basically, you know, financial messaging software that wasn't doing sanctions screening appropriately. It was, this wasn't like, Linus Tortzvold and a, and a, and a hundred thousand other people that put in one little pull request to GitHub. They didn't know what exactly it was going to be used for, um, and it went in. It was like a whole bunch of software developers hired by Wells Fargo to specifically make financial software infrastructure that they, everyone knew was going to be used to move billions of dollars a week. All U.S. persons, probably you know, from Wells Fargo based in the U.S. and and had people repeatedly internally saying. Guys, this is not working. <laughs> this is a huge risk. It's not working, um, and over and over and over again. Whereas I think you you have something in the in the open source space like this, where you know you could you could have one piece of contribution to a Plonk or a Snark or or a zk proof or something that that somebody pulled from your Apache license over here and put it in over here because they were allowed to. And now, did you just contribute to something? Was it reasonably foreseeable? It is reasonably foreseeable even the test? And because people weren't specifically enforced against that could appeal or or listed in designation that could appeal, you have this collateral chilling where people that, that are in some way associated through GitHub as having been involved in some form with Tornado Cash are getting deplatformed. And because there's no specific listing or anything for them to appeal against, it's sort of just this like, it is like a shadow ban, but it's developers that that like this is their their livelihood is is doing development work that might be secure. I mean, you could have security workers who are you know these are people that are into cybersecurity that are thinking, well, this is like a VPN. This is really important. I'm I'm doing this one little piece. I don't know that someone's gonna abuse it dramatically, and and it happened to take off, and so North Lazarus Group decided it was very usable. But are you way over chilling sort of open source software development, which, and actually the Atlantic Council recently published an awesome piece about how open source development is, is like the backbone of infrastructure in the US at this point for software. I mean, like you, you want open source software development, like it, it's, 
there's a reason it's taken off from the early Linux days um, to now where it's like, it's, it's the predominant, like actually California state recently created some of their software for the state functioning using an open source software bidding process that actually created it. I think it was like 70% under budget. <laughs> um, and then when it was code audited, people said, actually, this is fantastic. Like it's just had like a million eyes on it and it's some of the best stuff out there. So I think you don't want to be in a position of chilling people from feeling like I can't contribute in even a small way. Like, sure, if you get, you know, in the way that OFAC has traditionally functioned, you have the sort of, even though intent is not a specific part of it, you have what's, you know, these are circumstantial indicators that somebody built something to specifically launder for North Korea or whatever. I think that's a different situation, but I just think the percentages here are a bit off and, and there's no question that 554 million to North Korea had become an unacceptable amount. So I, I think I really see this as a North Korea action, not a an attack on devs by any means. It's more that the collateral impact, I think, to me is sort of over the line. I want to make sure that we pivot in the last few minutes to talk about this new Warren Marshall bill, because I'd love to get both of your takes on it and sort of how we how we think about it, because it's a it's another more legislative approach to tackling illicit finance and crypto. Um, and so this bill, you know, it was first released at the end of last year, and it's expected to be re-released anytime now. And, and basically what it seeks to do is categorize validators, miners, I think MEV searchers are even in the bill or past versions of the bill as financial institutions that are subject to Bank Secrecy Act obligations. Um, and this is, you know, my impression of it is it, it just feels like it misunderstands sort of like how this technology works. But then, you know, I go in and I chat with folks who are sort of authors of the bill um, and they're quite adamant that this is, you know, same rules, same regulations as we have in, in the financial system. And, uh, you know, Mike, I know you and I have like talked ad nauseum about why this may or may not be same rules, same regulation. I'm curious, like, is it the same rules and same regulation as the financial system or is this actually uh, are they thinking about things pretty differently from uh, how we how we traditionally think about categorizing validators or messaging platforms, for example? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, Mira, I don't. I don't see it as same rules because you know, as we discussed, like there are there are even versions of validators in Web One and Web Two. Like data processing and DNS resolving and and packet switching is is ha has been happening since since the T and Swift was telecom. You know, or in the early days, like it, this has always been the the infrastructure of communications. So we may have done it to ourselves a little by calling things wallets instead of key key management, but I don't think this is same rule, same risk. And also, I think it I think that's a, a, the way you frame it is good because the, the point should be, what are the risks and how do we address them? Not let's make everything a financial intermediary and I can LastPass and Google Cloud can all become like JP Morgan. Everyone will have a three thousand person compliance department that's reading everything. And that will be completely safe because I think the reality is coming from a national security background, like it's just things are just going to go darker in other ways. So that that's not going to be the answer to it. So it, it shouldn't be let's make everything fit the old rules. Like what's the risk that we're trying to address here and how do we address it? And frankly, have that conversation then of like, well, well wait a minute in the in the Wells Fargo transaction, are we requiring Cloudflare and Google like, are we requiring Google in general to read all of the the emails and documents that Amira creates? Because any given one of those could be the email that's that's telling someone how to to get weapons to Russia. 
Like we don't, we consider that data, it's data processing. Um, and there's, yes, they shouldn't give the account directly to Vladimir Putin, but they aren't reading every, well, they're reading all of Amir's emails to, to sell her things, but they're not reading them for sanctions compliance. So we've decided under the old rules, it's okay for marketing, but we're not going to do it for sanctions compliance. Like to suddenly say, okay, now packet switchers and, and, and syntactic validators for code to make sure there aren't errors in it, you should be giving everybody a frisk before they send it. Like I just, it just seems like a, a strange way to approach it when the, the risk hasn't been defined. Right. I, I'm just going to just pick up on that point about the risk being defined and, and going back to that notion of risk-based compliance being that sort of each actor, particularly each US actor, uh, is expected to put in place mechanisms that respond to the risks that are identifiable to them. And that, and that there's a rule of reason with respect to that as well. So you know, one of the examples that I often give is, you know, in theory, if, if an individual who's on the SDN list shows up at a Starbucks in New York City and wants to buy a coffee, uh, it's prohibited for uh, Starbucks to sell that person a coffee. Does Starbucks take everyone's name and screen them against the SDN list before they hand them, you know, a venti pike place? Uh, no, they don't. And so there's a bit of a sense of just because information is accessible to you that you could use to deploy for sanction screening, and maybe it is, you know, IP address information with respect to a transaction that's happening on the blockchain. OFAC has said in a number of cases that where that information is being collected, there's a, a strong presumption that it should be used for sanctions compliance purposes. But there's at some point there's a rule of reason that says that um, you know uh, Starbucks doesn't have to screen the name of everyone who's buying a coffee. And I think the the challenge in the Warren Marshall legislation is what the ideal outcome would be, and whether this is what the bill would achieve, I think is a very much an open question. But what the ideal outcome would be for a, a subset of the actors that are that, that are in a position to take those risk-based steps to have the obligation to do it. And that's actually what would be most similar to the existing rules for the traditional financial institutions, right? Which is not that Gmail is screening your email, not that Swift is screening those messages, because there are other players in the ecosystem on whom those burdens are placed with respect to anti-money laundering, namely the financial institutions that are involved. So sort of treating everyone, including those who are merely transmitting information as being the same as a traditional bank, seems like an overbroad response to the, to the issue. Yeah, the Starbucks example is interesting because there's nothing stopping us today from putting a facial scanner on every cash register in the United States. We can laugh about that it's because it's a little ridiculous of an idea. But from a technology standpoint, we have all the technology we need to have an incredibly strong surveillance state pushing sanctions enforcement at every cash register in America. And this is why I think the blockchain piece of it is so interesting, because the way the blockchain technology is built, it is easier to implement this kind of surveillance. But it's also just as easy in the traditional world. And I guess from my perspective, the reason that this feels like it's worth fighting against in blockchain is not just for the sake of blockchain, but because you could very quickly see a push to bring this exact kind of financial surveillance into people's day-to-day -day lives, where you have facial recognition systems at the Starbucks to make sure someone's not on a certain list. But it seems like people are not necessarily thinking about it from that risk profile. There's also a differentiator between how internet and technology is built in the United States and blockchain in particular versus how it's built in other countries, right? And sort of the values posture that we take has resonance beyond our own borders. 
And that becomes like old, really true with how we think about technology. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is why this is well, two things. I think that's why one, I think the bill should be defining the risk and why the response to that is the right cost benefit analysis, which I think is why we don't have. I mean, the Chinese method of, of sort of facial scanning and everything is electronic state controlled money, like makes sense for them, I guess. But um but, but I don't think, I mean, I think it's demonstrable that that is not sort of the foundation of the U.S. as a hub for personal sovereignty, which has led to the, the innovation that's made the U.S. sort of uh, an economic powerhouse or at least an innovation powerhouse to date. And I think that's the sort of cost benefit that, we, that has to be made. And I think it's also when you're not defining the risk, it gets easy to sort of make fixes that, that fit whatever you want. But we spent years with listening to folks complaining that, that the reason that ransomware was happening was because of crypto, including those of us in the national security space saying, no, actually, it's a cybersecurity issue. And in FinCEN, in fact, we convened a bunch of people and said, we're not going to we're not going to take action on crypto. We're actually going to treat the cybersecurity issue, which is bringing in cybersecurity experts. And let's let's build a better infrastructure that resists ransomware. And in the last crypto crime report from Chainalysis, crypto payments to ransomware were down 60%. And if you look at what was it that led to the, the payments being down 60%, it wasn't because we banned crypto. It's because people focused on proper cybersecurity so that they didn't have to pay to begin with, which was insurance companies saying, we're not going to insure you unless you do vulnerability testing, unless you do multi-factor authentication, unless you do data backups. So all these things, while everybody was talking about crypto, it was distracting from people focusing on the fact that actually here's a bunch of concrete things that can get done that will actually reduce it um, as opposed to just talking about what's not the risk. So I, I do think it's really important that in these bills or in, in and it happens in rulemaking more, more as a requirement, but like you need to define the risk and why is the cost benefit makes sense. Whereas that bill just is just sort of an overbroad, let's treat everybody like a bank. Yeah, I really like where we've arrived in this conversation because we're really getting to the principles of how do we weigh values like privacy against you know, some of the the changes that technology could usher in. And this is something that's applicable, not just in blockchain, but across the board. So appreciate your teasing this out with us, guys. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.